This is the city, Seattle, County of King, State of Washington, Seattle, USA. In all this wide, wide world, there's no other city quite like it. I'm Felix Bunnell, and this is Downtown Stories from the Downtown Seattle Association. That was the voice of Seattle Mayor Gordon Clinton back in the late 1950s, right around the time when the Downtown Seattle Association first came to life. Those were big years for Seattle, and the DSA came along at just the right time to bring people together, to help make the heart of our city a great place to work, live, shop, and play. Downtown Stories is a new podcast launched in honor of the 60th anniversary of the Downtown Seattle Association. It's all about exploring the city where we live and finding out how it came to be one of the most dynamic downtowns anywhere. On this episode, the DSA was founded in 1958, and downtown Seattle, of course, goes back a bit further than that to the arrival on native land of the settlers known as the Denny Party back in the 1850s. Just how did a group of settlers from Illinois go about creating a city from scratch? And where does the Seattle spirit come from? Museum of History and Industry Director Leonard Garfield is our guest. He says the founders of Seattle were a little bit different from other settlers who headed west in the 19th century. But Seattle had something different in mind. And of course, famously, David Denny envisioned a city and said that there's room for a thousand people here. That was never the uh, imagination of Oregon Trail settlers for the most part. They wanted just enough room for their family and some cows. And what better place to meet than at the foot of Yesler Way, not far from where those settlers decided to build a city on Elliott Bay. With the roar of the Alaskan Way Viaduct in the background, I began by asking Leonard Garfield how the downtown Seattle we know today came to be. I, I think Yesler, it's kind of the this is really the DNA of, of Seattle as an industrial city, as a manufacturing city, as a city of innovation. I mean, it really began here. But what is fascinating to think about is there was this community of young people, mostly in their 20s, some were teenagers even. They didn't really have anything, but what they did have was land and they had an idea. And they brought in this old guy, you know, Henry Yesler, this grizzled guy who was essentially an itinerant entrepreneur. He had something, but he had something special, but he needed people in Seattle to make it work. And so they gave him what they had, which was land, and they gave him space, and they gave him permission to bring in this steam-powered sawmill. And it really was transformative, because suddenly we went from an economy of a few European-Americans essentially squatting here, and a native community that had lived here for thousands of years, we suddenly had a cash economy, we had an industrial economy, we were literally within months trading with the rest of the world. We have records at Mohai that show that Yesler was shipping lumber as far away as Asia in 1853, a year after he opened the mill. So suddenly on this street, we were transforming ourselves into what was going to be an incipient global community. And that's pretty remarkable to be able to say, we can find ground zero where this all started. Of course, this was Skid Row. So he had the, the timber line was on the top of the hill. It was receding. He was shipping the lumber, you know, famously shipping the timbers to the mill. Everybody was working there, native people, uh, American people, everybody. Um, one of the first African-Americans to come to Seattle, uh, Bill Gross, became the cook at Yesler's Mill and eventually amassed enough money to build uh, properties and homes and businesses in the Madison Valley. Dexter Horton got his start in Yesley's Mill, started the financial industry in Seattle. I mean, everybody started here, and uh, it's pretty amazing. I, there are not too many places in the United States where you can go and say, this is where it began in the sense that 
before and after Yesler is the line that divides those two eras. And it seems like it's not too much of a leap to say, to, to look at Seattle in 2018, at the kinds of businesses we have here, the relative diversity of our economy, especially compared to mm -hmm. 30, 40 years ago when yeah. it was all Boeing, yeah. and be able to say like, yeah, the, the tone and the, and the culture were set in the 1850s. Do, do you think that's possible? Can a city sort of develop its culture that early on and carry that forward to where we are now? I, I think that's absolutely true. I think this was a remarkable community. If you look at the sort of the DNA, the psychic DNA of the people who came here, they were young. Uh, they were in part surveyors. They were people who uh, we know from the records subscribed to things like Scientific American. They were people who knew that the railroad was coming. They had some sense of the, their relationship on the Pacific Rim. We didn't call it that then, but they understood that we were relatively closer to Asia than other parts of the United States. You add all that together and you have a community that's really looking toward the future. And if you look at other communities that arose at the end of the Oregon Trail, they were largely agricultural communities. They were farming communities. They were replicas of what existed in, the home, in their hometowns in the Midwest or in the East. They were essentially repeating that and just doing it with more opportunity to, um, for themselves. But Seattle had something different in mind. And of course, famously, David Denny envisioned a city and said that there's room for a thousand people here. That was never the uh, imagination of Oregon Trail settlers for the most part. They wanted just enough room for their family and some cows. And we had room for a thousand people. And with a thousand people comes business and industry and trade and shipping. And all those things leaped onto, from, from the mind onto into reality right here on, on, on Yesler. Um, and I think that really became the foundation of this city. And I don't think the city ever really turned back whether it was building its own railroad, when the railroad titans east of here decided Seattle wasn't a worthy terminus, uh, Seattle got to work and did their own, whether it was building their own battleships uh, to, to sort of launch us into the ship uh, building industry, uh, whether it was to um, essentially reshape our downtown, you know, nature be damned, the hills be damned, we're gonna level this town and make it uh, a, flat, a flatter, more, more conducive place for business and commerce. We really took all those things on, on, on our own um, energy, our own, our own um, inspiration. Even Felix, things like the cleaning up of Lake Washington, you know, these great civic projects, people getting together and not waiting for an environmental tragedy, not waiting for a court order, not waiting for a single person to come by with a big pot of money, but saying we're a smart community, we can get together, we can t tackle this challenge, and we can actually do something better for future generations. I think that's the Seattle spirit. And that spirit was identified way back in the 19th century. And thankfully, we still have it. But we've got to keep building it. We've got to strengthen it. We've got to hold on to it, because that's what distinguishes us from the rest of the United States. Yeah, it seems like a lot of those other communities you think about in the 19th century, whether it's Olympia, or Nisqually, or Oregon City, or Portland, or River. Or Puyallup, where many of our <laughs> listeners are. Yeah. They had this sort of, they, were, they had other things going for them. They were either the territorial capital yeah. or they had some sort of yeah. like outside entity that was really boosting them. Yeah. Seattle, it seems like it was all bootstrapped. It was all homegrown. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, there's, a, there's sort of a theory in history that cities grow up in one of two ways. There are cities that are very uh, monolithic, um, very hierarchical. They have a single family or a single industry or a single source of, of, um, of wealth that brings everybody together. And it becomes a very... Um, a uniform and very monolithic community. And we can port, point to some communities. Actually, Portland's history began much that way. And there are other communities that grow up in 
with a sense of diversity and almost conflict and a scrappiness. And New York is famously one of those cities. Seattle is more of a New York. And in fact, of course, our first name for a very short period was New York Alki. Someday we'll get to be New York. But I think that spirit of New York, of uh, cooperation, but a little bit of collision, people coming and trying to, you know, sort of grab for the next best thing, the next big idea, that's characterized Seattle. And I think that diversity in our population and in our economy, despite being dominated by big industries at different periods of time, that underlying diversity, I think, has strengthened Seattle. Sometimes it creates problems. Uh, it, it makes it sometimes a challenging city. Um, but I think ultimately that has been one of the keys to our economic success. And it seems like um, if you pick Yesler's Mill um, in the 1850s as the signature event of developing the economy here, that there's other things that happen in that period between the 1850s and, let's say, World War II. Mm. If you had to pick a handful of things like in chronological order after Yesler's Mill, yeah. what would be the next big thing that was the significant That brought us together. Event? I would say building the railroad. Uh, it, was, it was both the local development of a railroad that went to the eastern King County coal fields, which really made us a coal um, uh, center for the western United States. That was huge. Uh, and then the coming, of the, uh, eventually the coming of the Transcontinental Railroad, which really did make us a terminus and eventually an important shipping point to Asia and particularly to Japan. I think those were huge. I think actually in the early 20th century when our shipbuilding industry took off and uh, the Moran Shipyard got uh, bid for the contract to build the battleship Nebraska couldn't do it on its own and ask citizens of Seattle and small businesses in Seattle to actually contribute to their coffers in order to submit a bid that would be competitive. They did it, they won the bid, and that launched not only a battleship, it launched an industry that from the get-go employed thousands of people and really laid the basis for a huge um, uh, economic um, engine for Seattle. And then of course Boeing. Um, the, the happy circumstance that Bill Boeing decided to uh, retire from the timber industry at a young age uh, and put his resources towards flight, something that personally fascinated him. But using the boat building industry as sort of the key um, uh, basis for both the labor and the craft that would lead to airplanes, bringing in some amazing engineers, including that young uh, Chinese uh, aeronautical engineer, Wang Su, from China, um, and then building essentially the commercial airplane manufacturing business that today, of course, is still uh, the great, the, the great um, airplane manufacturer in the world. Uh, that, that was hugely important. The militarization of the Puget Sound, the fact that we were receptive to that, that we worked hand in glove with creating a, a series of military bases, which made us a very important military center both in World War I and World War II, and then all the industrial home front that served the war industries, that was very important, the growth of PACAR and uh, many of the other heavy manufacturers that dominated Seattle industry and economy for the 20th century. But you know, I think, Felix, another important thing about Seattle is along the lines of doing all those things, we also were investing in a livable city. We were, we were creating things like the Pike Place Market to make it a comfortable place to shop and a healthy place to live. We were investing in our park system, inviting the Olmsted brothers to develop a park system that would last a century. We were um, investing in our public education system. We had one of the finest public education systems in the country in the early 20th century. We were very focused on a livable community. And as our economy grew and we became a more middle class and a, and a wealthier city, we also became a more livable city. And that became attractive to people who were bringing in new industries. So famously, Bill Gates and Paul Allen grew up in Seattle 
loved this community because of all the wonderful amenities it had, but clearly could have lived anywhere and started their businesses anywhere, which they did, but they came back to Seattle. And to me, the return of those young technocrats, those two young technological innovators to Seattle was really the apotheosis of the Seattle dream because it was saying that a city that is livable is also a city that's conducive to innovation. And we really, I think the two parts of Seattle, its economic vitality and its focus on livability uh, came together and from Microsoft we see the growth of uh, just a huge high-tech sector and of course the coming of Amazon in order to be close to Microsoft and you know the story continues which is what's so exciting. So I think those are some of the major things. And I guess the other thing I would add would be the investment in the University of Washington. You know, again, you have to go back to the 1860s, not far from here, where we're standing on Yesler Way. Uh, another one of those visionary ideas. Let's, let's fight for that territorial university. We don't have students, we don't have books, we don't have teachers, but we're gonna build a beautiful building. We're gonna put it on the highest hill so everybody will see it. It will become a symbol of what we wanna be. And 17 years later, we you know, graduate the first student. But of course that grows to become the uh, intellectual engine that accompanies the economic engine of this community. And it, it was another hugely transformative moment for Seattle. But it does, it traces its roots back uh, nearly 150 years. All those things we've talked about happened from the 1850s up to the more, more recent past, decades ago. It, that stuff doesn't just happen automatically. Right. It seems like there was some guiding principle, whether it was the Denny's and dealing with Yesler or the Arthur Denny and uh, Daniel Bagley mm -hmm. deciding to you know, partner to get the university on the top of the hill there. Was there what was what was the guiding spirit? How did that guiding spirit come to be? Came how did the guiding spirit come to be that encourage all those people to do all those things that look right now look yeah. look, look like pure genius and look yeah. like they were yeah. totally calculated, yeah. but they probably weren't as calculated as they seem yeah. looking back. Yeah. How, how did it all come together? Yeah, that's that's a great question because it does take leadership. I think Seattle is a community uh, in part because of its diversity, because of the, the sort of fact that there isn't one dominant family or dominant um, uh, force or dominant cultural institution. I think it's a community that welcomes smart ideas and smart ideas are propagated by smart people. We've invested in smart people. You know, those early young people who invested in Henry Yesler, they took a risk and it was the right thing to do. Uh, we, we invested in Robert Moran when he said he was going to build a shipyard and the community rallied around Bill Boeing when he said he had a, a company to grow. Um, and I think that willingness to listen to ideas and then allow those people who have those ideas to run with them and to join them in that, in that journey has been a huge source of strength from Seattle. I don't know if it's unique to Seattle, but I know it's something that has made Seattle a stronger and a better city. I know during World War II, a lot of cities were changed by the influx of federal dollars and people and everything, but it seems like Seattle underwent um, huge changes in its diversity, huge changes in the number of people living here, and just huge changes in its um, cosmopolitan might be the right word, or yeah. sophistication. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how Seattle changed during yeah. World War II? Yeah. So, you know, during right before the war, in 1940, the floating bridge on what's now I-90 was built, was opened, and the opportunity to expand to the eastern east side of Lake Washington, essentially the suburbanization of Seattle, really was launched. But the war put a, a halt to that, or at least it slowed it down tremendously. After the war, especially as you know, vets were returning home, there was a boom in the population from people who were recruited to Seattle, a boom with returning vets, a housing shortage. 
suddenly suburbanization took off. And that was a threat to downtown Seattle because uh, very early after the war, we saw some of the first regional shopping centers develop. Of course, Northgate famously was uh, sometimes believed to be the first enclosed shopping mall in the United States. Um, it predates I-5, but it begins to suburbanize the city and the region. We see suburban shopping centers developing, and we see lots of housing development. It was, it was a um, period that was, a, in some ways, a threat to the more centralized urban development of the pre-war years. So Seattle had a very big and robust downtown. It was more robust during World War II because it was a center of entertainment, it was a center of shopping. So we were really faced with a dilemma. And retail leaders in Seattle did two things that I don't know if they happened in other cities. We both doubled down on downtown. We saw the expansion of the Bon Marchés building. We saw the expansion of Frederick and Nelson's building. But we also moved into the suburbs with some very large uh, suburban shopping centers and department stores. We tried to have it both ways. And for quite a while, we actually had both. We had a growing suburban shopping uh, economy, and we had a pretty robust downtown. I think the tipping point for that was probably in the 1970s and 1980s, where Seattle as a city, and as a downtown in particular, really was facing an existential question. Are we going to reinvest in our central city? Are we going to, as a community, re-up our commitment to downtown? Are we going to really try to have a city that is 24 hours, livable, healthy, diverse, um, or are we going to go to the suburbanized model that had essentially reshaped most American cities where all the jobs, or most of the jobs, all the activity, all the retail is really found outside the central city? You've been listening to a conversation with Leonard Garfield, Executive Director of Seattle's Museum of History and Industry. He was my guest on Downtown Stories, a podcast from the Downtown Seattle Association. On our next episode, it was right in the middle of the heady years that led up to the 1962 World's Fair. A group of downtown business people got together to tackle challenges and seize opportunities in downtown Seattle on the eve of the city's dramatic debut on the world stage. I'm producer and host Felix Bunnell. See you next time for more Downtown Stories. Things are swinging in Seattle. Things are swinging in Seattle. It's the place for